This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. I'm Katie Ganaway with Brett Tannehill Producing. Tonight we sit down with Deacon Sue, performing at the Women in Music event this weekend in Huntsville. She talks about her personal music journey, starting with her writing process. I don't want to talk about genres, we don't want to like put it in a box, and let's just figure out what, what, what you want to say as an artist. We began a two-part series from Planet Money on the accidental birth of recycling. It was the worst proposition I ever got into, okay? And forever will be known as that dummy who sailed the garbage barge. What a legacy, huh? Plus, we'll have the last interview of a three-part series on local theater spaces. And Sally Warden stops by to update us on more exciting Alabama Bicentennial events. Stay tuned. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Katie Ganaway. Brett Tannehill is the man behind the scenes, making tonight's show sound groovy. Coming up this hour, we hear from Planet Money in part one of a two-part series. We meet the man behind residential recycling in the U.S. as we know it today. Also, Vivian Adkins of IMP Huntsville fills us in on an unseen side of the local theater realm. And Sally Warden clues us in on upcoming bicentennial events, including this year's Twickenham Fest. It's their 10th anniversary, you know. You can also find a podcast at WLRH.org and on the WLRH Facebook page. But first, Deacon Sue drops by the WLRH studios to talk with Valley Sounds producer T-Mill on the musical catalyst in Huntsville that moved her to become an independent artist. Of course, many artists like Deacon start from square one. What to write? I think I was given a lot of creative freedom. Mm. Um, I work with Kelvin Wooten. He's my producer, and um, he gives me a lot of from the beginning I mean this is I think our, for, our fourth project together and for, even from the beginning like I was always given whatever you want to do well you know I don't want to talk about genres we don't want to like put it in a box let's just like write and let's just figure out what what, what you want to say as an artist so I've been very fortunate um, to have that opportunity so it was never really like an you know I've, I've been able to like change and challenge myself and you know kind of flounder around and figure it out so it's cool you know, working with someone like a Kelvin Wooten, um, I imagine that, you, again, you mentioned about freedom. Yeah. So there has to be just mounds of recordings and just crazy ideas that you guys have come up with that maybe we'll get the we'll get to hear. And hopefully, <laughs> you know, because just the magic that you guys make, I could tell it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, what are those what is your recording sessions like? What are you. Because, you know, everybody sees movies or you see YouTube videos and someone's writing or they're laying down on the ground yeah. or they're driving in the car and they're trying to drive and write at the same time yeah. or whatever. What is your recording process like and your writing process like? Um, It's just very, very chill, just very like, you know, we just kind of go in and um, there's no agenda. You know, mm. you just kind of I, I'm, I write best to non-melodic sounds. Um, drums usually so mm. he'll usually start on like the drum machine or you know I'll, I'll have like a melody or, or, or a melody will come to me I should say um, mm. and then it just will you know evolve kind of from there you know and I usually write verses first uh, and then it just kind of you know goes different places you know it's kind of it's, yeah it's very organic you know what I could I could see that and and hear that because <laughs> when you said you write to the to the drums or to the percussion yeah I could hear like you sounds like you're dancing when you're writing like you're <laughs> writing the steps like if you were you know composing a, a dance or something like that yeah in my mind that's how it makes sense of it it's yeah. like you're you're composing and you got a mean dance game you got a mean two step and a mean <laughs> you know showmanship uh how where did you learn your moves from I mean is it I something you come I, up with on I your own and yeah, I, I honestly don't think I have that much rhythm. So uh, what? I think I just kind of move and I I want to be able to like entertain people. I want like my thing is like when I go to a show, I want to be entertained. And energy is like key for a performer, an entertainer. For sure. And so I want to be able to like give that to people, you know, like they went to a show, they like, got out of their bed or like they had a bad day and they come to a show of mine and they're like, yo, that was like amazing. Like yeah. she was so on it like she just has so much like energizer bunny like that's 
you know, that's what it's about for me. So whether I'm on 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 cue or on on beat, you know, we never know. But uh, it's cool. Now let's talk about uh, the NPR Tiny Desk. Right. You know, every year they have this Tiny Desk um, performances and across the world these competitions and everything like that. But very rarely do we see people that we grew up with or people that you know from our hometowns right. and and especially from North Alabama. Yeah. In the tiny desk room, you know, at NPR, you know, yeah. this this little library room or whatever. I don't know what it looks like. I just see it from the videos. Yeah. But how did that happen and how did it feel? Um, I was uh, recording for one of my projects and I was set to leave the next day. And it was like Kelvin. Yeah, it was Kelvin and I in the studio and we he saw it online. It was like they were doing a contest. It was the first contest they were doing and yeah. it was it's been on my bucket list it was on my bucket list i was like i must do an npr tiny desk one day this yeah. is like one of my dreams to do it and so he was like well there's a contest you know if you want to like enter it you know um we can do it and um it was like two three o'clock in the morning it was it was late <laughs> um and i was like dude like it was just it was just like a lot yeah. so we ended up doing it finished it and I was like, there's no way anything's going to happen with this. Like, I think both of us were like, nah, nothing's going to, like, you know, I didn't think anything of it. <laughs> like, two weeks later, we, like, found, like we see online on their website that, like, it was, like, a favorite. And mm. um, it ended up being, like, a front runner. And obviously I didn't win. But um, Bob Boyland, who's, like, so gracious and he's so amazing, that's, like, T- Tiny Desk is his baby. Um, he still invited me to come up and do my own Tiny Desk. And it was, like... Amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a great day indeed. Absolutely. And you guys can go to her website to check that out. Or if you're on YouTube, check it. Check that out. Tiny Desk Deacon Sue uh, and turn it up loud. You know, turn it up very loud. Have a good time. Um, now, I see also you do um, you're, you're working. a lot. You did some work in the schools and, you know, performing and working uh, with the kids and working with, you know, Kelvin Wooten and the Microwave Dave Foundation and right. doing things for, uh, for the kids. I don't know about you, but at any point in your childhood, did anyone as cool as you come to perform at your school? No, and that's why it's that important. <laughs> no, I if, never, yeah, like I never had anyone cool come to my school. I think the only musical situation that I had, experience I had before, like, you know, I started music myself was the Aeolians from Oakwood University uh, came to uh, California. Yeah. And I saw them with my parents and I was like, I must go there. I want to <laughs> go to that school and sing in that group. And yeah. I was like eight or nine. Oh, wow. And that was like, yeah, that was the only time I ever was just like blown away by like music. Now, if you could, if we could find the McLaren, go back to the future, go back in time, who would you bring to your school? Who, who would be that performing artist that you would want to see? Who would blow your mind? I know I'm probably going to get, like, ripped a new one for this one, but I really think, like, Kanye. I've seen Kanye, like, live. <laughs> He's amazing live. Like, if you haven't seen the experience of him, it's amazing. That's like, dope. He's dope. I want to talk about, you know, making your way as an independent artist right. and also booking. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of your advice for the aspiring artists um, that are out there or just, the, again, the artists that may be, considering doing this yeah. um, of how you've been able to survive as a independent artist well let me preface this answer by saying I am not the end-all be-all I am learning every day I'm still and always hope to be a student of the entertainment business um, it's ruthless mm. and if you're not a hundred percent all in ready to go this is what I want to do for the rest of my life or for the long run like don't don't uh, don't do it mm. like it's just it's always changing constantly and you just have to have the will to just keep going now with booking uh we're here in 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 north alabama in particular the rocket city the 256 and booking has been one of the i guess more it's come up a lot now that we're having we're getting a lot more venues and we're getting a lot more opportunities which is great and there's a lot of venues that are coming up in in and around huntsville and then probably just in, in general, you know, just this music renaissance. Um, you mentioned earlier as uh, Saturn being one of your favorite places to perform. Yeah. And you're not the first person I've heard say that. Yeah. But what we didn't get into is why. So what is why is the Saturn one of your favorite places to perform? The Saturn in Birmingham is just like a really cool venue just like off top. Um, and I opened for Tank and the Bang is 
um, at the Saturn. Nice. So it was just like that that energy like that night was just so insane. Like it was just a really great night. It was a sold out show. Like it just was cool. Like in the environment and like the people, like it just was it was like it was a great night. What are some of your tips for artists that are just beginning and, and maybe they're they're at the point where they can get out and perform and they feel, you know, comfortable and maybe the anxiety isn't as much as it was. Right. What are some of your tips in just booking in, in general for the artists? Um, be humble. There's a lot of artists that are not, um, that don't exercise being humble and humility when, you know, dealing with other artists, like if you're on a lineup of situations or, or, you know, bands for a night, like, you know, you find an artist being mean or just like being snooty to like sound men, sound text. You never know who knows who Mm. in the world and especially in the music um, industry. And so it's always just nice to just be like, just keep your head down and just be nice. I can take whatever you got, every swing and every shot, every blow no matter how I'm here so give it a go. Deacon Sue, Time Magazine dubbed her Queen of Quirk. You heard her there talking with Valley Sounds producer Tim Miller, who also produces the In Tune with T-Mill podcast. Deacon Sue takes the stage Saturday, August 17th from 7 to 10 p.m. at the Women in Music event at the Stone Event Center, part of Campus 805. The In the Round Style Songwriter Showcase will feature Deacon Sue and more Huntsville women musicians with creative vibes and a lot of soul. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville. Next up, Recycling We Will Go. We're used to using the blue bins. And now, for Madison, Huntsville, and Madison County, blue rolling carts, Planet Money's Sarah Gonzalez meets the person responsible for residential recycling as we know it today. I started working on this story about recycling. I did not expect a lost ship and the mob. Well, I can tell you a story that is actually quite interesting about the origination of recycling. This is Thomas Kinneman. He's a professor of economics at Bucknell University. To be able to understand why Americans embrace recycling, you have to understand the story of the garbage barge or the garbage ship called the Mobro. The Mobro? Yeah, the Mobro, M-O-B-R-O. Tell me the story. Yeah, the problem is the problem is this guy was allegedly part of the mafia, so I don't want him getting too mad at me. <laughs> is he still alive? I don't know. You can Google it. Okay. He is still alive. And yeah, we kind of owe recycling to the mafia, to the so-called five families in New York who made up the Italian-American mafia. You know, the Gambinos, John Gotti, that mafia. Specifically, we owe recycling to a guy named Salvatore Avellino, Sal, a chauffeur and mob boss with the Lucchese crime family who controlled garbage hauling on Long Island, got 10 years for conspiring in the murders of two garbage men. And I found Sal. Okay, I'm going to call a real, actual mob boss. Hello? That's Sal. Uh, Hi, is this Salvatore? Yes. Hey, Salvatore, my name is Sarah. Um, I am doing, I work for an economics show, and I'm doing a story about the garbage barge. Um, I know that it's kind of a complicated story, but I want to see if you would chat with me about it. Uh, well, i really rather not, I'll be honest with you. I, I want to be polite, but good luck, but I really don't want to talk about it. It was the greatest idea, but I was way ahead of my time. But um, I don't want to really go into it, Okay. I'm sorry. Okay, do you mind telling me why you don't want to talk about it? Uh, yes, okay. Yes, he minds. Okay? Okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much, Salvatore. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, decades ago, Sal had a business partner, a guy named Lowell Harrelson of Mobile, Alabama. Not a mafia guy, just a regular guy. Um, I'm so glad that I got in touch with you, Lowell. Always nice to meet new folks, you know, so I'm happy you did, too. <laughs> I, I wish you would be on another subject. Lowell also does not want to tell me the story. Uh, you know, I'd rather just let that thing go away, you know. I, frankly, I'd sooner I never had to mention it again. I mean, okay. Um, would you be open to just chatting with me, like, five minutes? Uh, I'm not fond of the subject, I can assure you. 
Nonetheless, you sound like a nice lady, and if you're ever in Mobile, you give me a call, and we'll meet up, and I'll buy us a cup of coffee. Okay. Well, then, I think I'm going to plan a trip to Mobile. Very good. You let me know when you plan to arrive. I would even pick you up. Okay. Okay. Hello, and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Sarah Gonzalez. Today on the show, the greatest shame and secret of Lowell Harrelson's life that changed garbage in the U.S. forever. It's part one of two shows, and the first story involves the mafia, a talking jaguar, a bug, and six million pounds of trash. I pull up to the wrong White House with pink flowers in the front yard. Honey, Lowell tells me this is Mobile, Alabama. Everything in this area is a White House with pink flowers in the front yard. Okay. Oh, I see you're over at my neighbor's house. I find the right house, and Lowell is there in the driveway waiting for me. Hello. Lowell makes us chat at his kitchen table for an hour before he's ready to get into the garbage barge. And when he's finally ready, he sits up a little taller. Will you just say your name for me? Lowell Harrelson, H-A-R-R-E-L-S-O-N. If you ask Lowell Harrelson how old he is, he answers, beaming with pride, 85. 85. Can you believe that? Still running on two cylinders. (laughs) (laughs) And what is your title? (laughs) I don't really have a title anymore. You're like a... Entrepreneur, businessman. Well, I guess you could call it that. That sounds rather sophisticated for somebody like me. You could call me a farmer if you like. That's how I grew up. They were sharecroppers. Grew corn, cotton. Potatoes. All kinds of vegetables. Typical. Typical of Alabama. Lowell grew up in a home with no trash can. We did not have a trash can. No, ma'am. Didn't need one. We didn't have no trash Everything we had to eat, we raised on that farm that we ate. We did get a five pounds of sugar once in a while. They'd also get a 50-pound sack of flour. Lowell remembers the bag came with these little flour designs on it. So my mama made my sister school dresses out of it. No waste. No trash can. Isn't that something? Wow. And we were happy. Oh, those are the days. Those days were in the 1930s, and at some point in Lowell's life, things changed. Now we produce so much garbage. My God, you see how much garbage? How can we do this? This is where Lowell's story with garbage really takes off. It's the 80s. Lowell is in the construction business, but like a lot of people at the time, he's thinking about alternative energy. And he hears about a guy in Westchester, New York, who was turning garbage into energy. And Lowell thinks, all that stuff that I hate sitting in landfills has this hidden use. So your motivation was to turn garbage into energy. That's correct. Garbage to energy. It looked like a very simple deal. He consults with some engineers and they say, yeah, this is a thing. This works. When you pile up trash, it decomposes and emits methane, a gas. And you can use methane to make power. So if we got enough garbage, we could sell the electricity to the grid. Everybody agreed this had merit. It was a question of putting the pieces together. By the way, we use this method today to get energy from landfills, but back then it was a new idea, and Lowell saw a business opportunity. He was going to create a huge pile of garbage and use it for electricity. But he would need a lot of garbage. Your local dump, that wasn't enough garbage. He needed boatloads of garbage. And at the time, if you were interested in garbage, New York was the place. New York City in the 80s had begun running out of landfill space and had to start paying other states to take their garbage. So Lowell is like, perfect, I'll use some of that garbage for my big pile of garbage plan. But in New York, at the time, garbage was controlled by the mob. Oh, yes. Now, that's a story that'll take a lot more time than we have today. Garbage in New York, that was like a controlled substance. There was a cartel that controlled the flow of garbage, and that's who you had to deal with. But he didn't know any of this at the time. 
All he knew was that if he wanted to buy garbage in New York, he needed to talk to a guy named Sal. You already know Sal. Uh, well, i really rather not. That's Sal. That's him? That's him. Sal had guys who collected New York trash, but they still had to pay to dump the trash somewhere to get it landfilled. And Lowell, he tells Sal, what if I take the garbage off your hands for less? Think about it. And then the FBI shows up at Lowell's door. Yeah, the FBI spoke to me two or three times, you know. What are you up to? I'm hauling garbage. If you got any, throw it on there. And that's when he said, oh, you know you're dealing with a mob. That's what it was. No, I didn't know that. But it doesn't matter. I'm trying to make energy over here. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Lowell knowingly gets into business with the mafia. But he says it didn't really feel like working with the mafia. There was a ride in a stretch Cadillac limo that was a little scary for Lowell. There was a dinner with Sal. Some guy told Lowell where to sit, and that's where Lowell sat. And that was it. Lowell would buy Sal's garbage. He's a nice guy. I like Sal. He's the guy that had the talking jaguar. You never heard about that? The talking jaguar. This is a tangent, but I mean, there's a talking jaguar. We have to. Salvatore Avellino had a 1982 black jaguar. That's what he drove the boss, Antonio Tony Ducks Corallo in. Tony Ducks because he ducked law enforcement. At least until this one thing happened on a rainy night in March of 1983. Salvatore's black jaguar is parked outside of a restaurant on Long Island. An agent opens the door. Another agent holds some kind of cover over the Jaguar to make sure that no raindrops spot the seat. They remove the dashboard, place a bug inside, put the dashboard back. They tapped Sal's Jaguar. And this bug recorded mob conversations that eventually took down all five bosses of the mafia. The car talked. The talking Jaguar. Okay, back to Lowell. Lowell's not doing anything illegal. He's just buying garbage. He arranges with the landfill in North Carolina that he's going to dump tons of New York garbage there and create a methane paradise. So, okay, so you had the source, you had the seller, you had landfills agreeing to take the garbage. Next, he has to move the garbage down. And the cheapest way to do that is by boat barge, actually. He gets one from Jacksonville, Florida, called the Mobro 4000, a big, flat iron deck to load the garbage onto. And he gets a tugboat from New Orleans called the Break of Dawn to tow the barge. A tugboat? A huge tugboat. (laughs) My impression of a tugboat is like this little, tiny, little, cute little tugboat. it's not. Okay. (laughs) Pound for pound and nothing more powerful than those tugboats. The barge gets loaded up in New York. 20 feet high, held down with cables. And on March 22, 1987, 3,186 tons of garbage set sail, steered by Captain Duffy St. Pierre. Duffy St. Pierre, one of the best in the business. Were you there when it got loaded up? Sure. Oh, you were? (laughs) Honey, I was watching that like a mom would watch over her new baby. What you talking about? At that time, my my whole life was tied to that thing. At that time, Lowell is full of hope. I told Duffy, the captain, now hurry up and get back here fast as you can so we can get another load down there for the weekend, you know. Oh, you're you're ready to make trips. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're ready to load up. The barge is moving very slowly, and people start noticing. Like, what is that thing? And somewhere in there... A crowd started showing up, and uh, then there's the newspaper people, TV people, all those folks wanting to know who this idiot is hauling all this garbage around. I said, here I am. What else can I say? Remember, New York was already trucking garbage to other states, so Lowell didn't think a ship would be any different. But somehow, the sight of this barge full of trash coming down the coast did not sit well with people. All these people, we don't want that garbage in our wonderful state. <laughs> Immediately, it was pretty obvious this is going to be a whole different problem than what I had. I had not anticipated this. 
Now, this is just normal garbage from people's homes. Nothing especially toxic or dangerous about it. But the EPA had just released new rules that said you couldn't dump toxic waste in landfills anymore. Someone said they saw a bedpan on the barge, like from a hospital or something. So everyone got it into their heads that there must be some Yankee mobster toxic waste hidden on the barge, and they're trying to unload it on us. A court order blocks the barge from unloading in North Carolina. I couldn't do anything more to try to force their hand, which was discussed. You know, we had a valid contract. But to try to force their hand would not have helped anybody. So what did you do next? I told them, told Duffy, get out in the ocean, get away from this crowd. Get up over the horizon. Drop anchor and let's give us some time to think, you know. Oh, you uh, dropped the anchor so it's just hanging out in the ocean. Sitting out there for a, until we could meet and see what we're going to do next. At some point, Florida goes, well, we'll take it. We'll charge you this much to unload it here. Come on over. So there goes Duffy. We get there on the coast of Florida somewhere, and out comes a crowd of 10,000, and it's dead again. Wherever we went, it drew big crowds. Alabama said don't even think about bringing it here. Lowell has the barge tied to a cypress tree on the Mississippi River, waiting. Mississippi didn't want it. Louisiana, mm -mm, don't bring it here either. It was like a soap opera. A helicopter is following the barge around. It's on the nightly news, like who will say no tomorrow? It's become something of a national joke. That garbage barge, which has been unsuccessfully seeking a home for almost a month and a half now. Still loaded with tons of garbage, still unwanted. So this little tugboat is tugging the barge around, looking for a home. Poor Captain Duffy St. Pierre can't dock anywhere to take a shower even. And it seems like everyone is following the garbage barge. The most watched load of garbage in the memory of man. Dripping brown ooze of possibly infectious material. People everywhere talking about how they found syringes and what none, nothing. The EPA comes out in white suits and breathing masks to inspect the garbage. They determine it's fine, it's just garbage, doesn't matter. The Mexican Navy went to the barge to deliver a message that the barge was not wanted in Mexico. Belize, the Bahamas, they sent out their defense forces. Do not bring it here. And Lowell says he wasn't actually trying to send the garbage to other countries. They just thought he was too close to them, I guess. It was just so surprising, something of that magnitude to hit like it did. It's so surprising it was... Numbing, really. So the barge is bobbing in the water in the Gulf of Mexico. Two months, three months, four months. Waves of salt water crashing over the garbage, baking in the sun, covered in flies, probably seagulls. Mm. Well, lady, you stirred up yeah. some awful <laughs> oh. um, emotions of mine. What people took from the image of this garbage barge sailing around for months was that there was no place for the garbage to go. It became a symbol for America's problem with trash. We've about run out of places to throw away our throwaways. By 1990, according to one federal survey, at least 27 states will be critically short of space to dump garbage. Everyone is like, what have we done? What have we done to this country? We've filled it with trash. Movies are made about the barge. It was a film called Sex, Lies, and Videotape. This is economist Thomas Kinnaman again. In the movie, he says the main character starts out sitting on a therapist's couch. The very first scene of the movie, and she's like, I just can't sleep at night. I just, where is all the garbage going? Garbage. All I've been thinking about all week is garbage. I mean, I just can't stop thinking about it. What kind of thoughts about garbage? I just, we have to run out of places to put this stuff eventually. The last time I, I started feeling this way is when that barge was stranded and, you know, it was going around the island and nobody would claim it. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember. There were all these stats coming out at the time that showed that the number of landfills in America 
was plummeting. Landfills were closing. And people kept citing these stats in stories about the garbage barge. And so people put it all together. And in their minds, the conclusion was that the United States is running out of landfill space. The United States was full that we couldn't store anymore. And were we full? We weren't full. The reason why we were not full. We weren't full. Yeah. Okay. Here's what else was happening at the time. Yes, landfills were closing, but that was because there were new rules for landfills, stricter rules to protect the environment. The EPA said you now have to do things like line the bottom of landfills with plastic so they don't contaminate the groundwater. And so the old town dump, every little town had one, was out of compliance. You can't accept garbage in here anymore. It's illegal. And so these town dumps were closing by the dozens. But in their place, regional landfills were becoming a thing. Bigger landfills that could accept trash while still following all these new rules. The Natural Resources Defense Council says there used to be about 10,000 dumps in the mid-80s and that now we have less than 3,000. But we were not running out of space then. And we still aren't running out of space. Thomas says we probably have thousands of years of landfill space left in the U.S. And even hardcore environmentalists reluctantly agree that, yeah, we have a lot of space left. But people thought we were running out of space. And that was what mattered. Um, And so the recycling era was born. This is when state government said we're going to require cycling to uh, recycling to occur. This is when people started separating their paper and plastic into little bins in their homes and offices because of Lowell and the mafia's garbage. That had more of an impact on society than anything else we talked about. That was that's where that's why we recycle to this day. Who knows where we'd be without that barge? Recycling became the answer to a problem that didn't exist. There were good environmental reasons for it, of course, less waste, less pollution. But that's not what convinced cities to start sending trucks to everyone's homes to pick up their glass bottles and cardboard boxes. Fear convinced us to do that. And it ended up with um, with laws that cost more and municipalities had to figure out ways to make it work and financially. And and we kind of been moving along since then. Lowell's garbage barge made a five-month, 6,000-mile journey before it found a home. A judge ordered the trash to go back to where it came from, New York, to be burned. Greenpeace hung up a sign that said, next time, try recycling. The ashes were buried in a landfill. Lowell paid. How much money did you lose? No, I'm not going to tell you that. (laughs) That's the most embarrassing secret of my life. (laughs) More than I would ever want to dream of. Uh, it it was the worst proposition I ever got into, okay? And forever will be known as that dummy who sailed the garbage barge. What a legacy, huh? What a legacy. Well, how do you feel about, I mean, you are basically the reason why we recycle. Yeah, it had an impact. I, I understand all that but it doesn't reduce my pain of being the world's biggest dummy, okay? (laughs) Lol, you are not the world's biggest dummy. But it it helped me in one respect, I guess. Lol says the barge taught him an important lesson, that some issues are so totally unpredictable. If he could go back to school, he says he'd want to study anthropology to understand why people hate the things they hate, like garbage. On my tombstone, I would like them to say, this old boy did his damnedest, okay? It was all right with me if they'd refer to that dummy that had that barge in the ocean. It suits me fine. <laughs> they can put that on my tombstone if they like. I don't have any hard feelings toward anybody. I have nothing but love and respect for people wherever they are and whoever they are. And I'm not the least bit worried about a legacy of any kind. So... We recycle now. But should we? That's next time on Planet Money. If you have a story idea, send us an email. Planetmoney at npr.org. Today's show was produced by Sally Helm. Brian Ursat edits our show. And Alex Goldmark is our supervising producer. Rachel Cohn and our intern Cynthia Bechubiza helped so much with fact-checking. And if you want to help out Planet Money, leave us a rating or review us in your podcast app. 
I'm Sarah Gonzalez. This is NPR. Thanks for listening. On the next Planet Money, part two. Unfortunately, recycling is, I'm not saying it's dead, but um, it's it's certainly, uh, I wouldn't say life support, but it's critical. (laughs) And uh, I don't want to be the person to burst their bubble. Uh, You will not be the one to burst people's bubble. I will burst their bubble. (laughs) Me and a bunch of cold-hearted economists. Thanks to Planet Money for letting us share part one of this story with you. Next week, we bring you part two, where they delve into whether the U.S. should break up with recycling. This is 89.3 member-supported Huntsville Public Radio. I'm your host tonight, Katie Ganaway, with Brett Tannehill Producing. Huntsville is still celebrating Alabama's bicentennial. Brett Tannehill talks with Sally Warden, executive director of the Alabama 200 Huntsville-Madison County Bicentennial Committee, about what's coming up in the next couple of weeks. You know, we've been talking about the Making Alabama traveling exhibit that's been at the Botanical Garden all summer long. They have now decided to extend it, and it's extended through August the 18th. So through this Sunday, that free exhibit will still be available. And the sweet homegrown Alabama activities continue through September. Uh, There's the state symbol scavenger hunt. And something that I always like is learning about heirloom plants and traditional Alabama crops. That's right. It's great to take a walk through the Botanical Garden, look at the Sweet Home Alabama projects they have going on there, learn a lot more about Alabama history. So uh, one of the very best things about Alabama is coming up August 20th through the 25th. And I do mean one of the best things in in the entire state. Um, it's the Twickenham Fest Chamber Music Festival. This is the 10th anniversary of this festival, and they're holding 10 free concerts across the city to celebrate 10 years. That's right. They've added a few new things this year, as a matter of fact, to get up to 10 concerts during the for the 10th anniversary celebration. The Bicentennial is going to be sponsoring Trill, which is a special concert that's geared towards young professionals. What's really cool about this is it's going to be in the historic Russell Erskine Ballroom. So that'll be fun to hear classical music in a, in a very historic building in downtown Huntsville. And they just reopened tickets for uh, Trill. I know there's only a few left, so folks, if you're interested in attending that, you should jump on those tickets. Just search for Twickenham Fest on Facebook or go to the Twickenham Fest uh, website. That's right. There's no charge for admission, but you do have to register online. All, all these concerts, they it's not a sellout, but all the seats fill up, um, so you do have to register. But they also have reminded us in recent years that just because the concert fills up, not everybody who gets a ticket shows up. So if there's something you really want to see, like the Pajama Jam at the library or Bach by Candlelight, you can still show up the day of the concert and possibly get added on uh, as uh, seats become available. That's right. And you can find out about all these concerts during the 20th through the 25th of August on TwickenhamFest.org. So uh, speaking of the library, on August 27th at 6 p.m., Uh, There's another bicentennial presentation, Voices of the Women's Suffrage Movement. That's right. This is a presentation that focuses on the women's right to vote and the 72 years it took for women to get that right. And uh, they they, uh, focus on the brave women who dared to go out and force the issue. Uh, And this is a great theatrical presentation, uh, interpretations of uh, things that led to that. On August 29th at 7 p.m., it's uh, another presentation, this time focusing on the Tennessee Valley Authority and its history uh, here in the Tennessee Valley, uh, Alabama and the New Deal. That sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, and they'll also be talking about the Civilian Conservation Corps camps, uh, which built those cabins up on Montesano. Um, On August 29th at the Straight to Ale Art Room on Campus 805, this one looks like a barn burner, and we've sort of touched on this in some of your past visits. Uh, It's a presentation Wild, Wonderful Women, the Bad Girls of Madison County. This sounds like it should be great. That is right. We did a teaser for this at Constitution Hall Park a couple of weeks ago, and there were lots of people there wanting to hear a little bit more about this. Did you know we had a Gypsy Queen and the Black Widow of Hazel Green? Yes. Do you have a favorite bad girl of Madison County, Sally? Actually, I think all of these are. And, you know, uh, Rena Anderson is going to be portraying Annie C. Mertz, who the Mertz Center... uh, Uh, Huntsville City Schools central office was named for. She was quite a character as well. The Alabama Women in Jazz Festival, we're into September now, is coming up September 6th through the 7th 
at here on the campus of University of Alabama in Huntsville. It's the sixth annual edition of this event, and this is something uh, that really to me, is one of the components of Huntsville's amazing local music scene. Exactly, and it will be focusing on Alabama jazz artists, female jazz artists. One of the great things about this is UAH students are admitted free of charge with their UAH ID. And we'll be covering more of this uh, during Valley Sounds, our local music show that airs Saturday nights at 9, and also during Morning Blend, which airs weekday mornings from 9 until noon. And finally, Sally, uh, kind of keeping Apollo uh, in our minds, I didn't know about this until you showed up today and told me about this, but at the Discovery Theater, which is located just past the ticket booth at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, they're doing a series of ongoing presentations uh, free and open to the public every Thursday afternoon. That's right. You know, we had the big hoopla several weeks ago for the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing, but these presentations are still picking up on topics, especially those central to the Huntsville area at the Discovery Theater every Thursday afternoon um, all the way through August and the early part of September. And why is it important for our listeners to take their families and themselves and their neighbors and their friends and go out and experience history? Well, you know, Alabama's 200th birthday really is celebrating everything about Alabama for the past 200 years that has gone gone on. And we all need to know a little bit about what what was going on back then over the past 200 years that has shaped us? We have historical markers. We have uh, venues that all celebrate the history of Alabama. Sally Warden, the executive director of the Huntsville-Madison County Bicentennial Committee. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Brett. We have a lot coming up in October. You can view a list of all upcoming Alabama Bicentennial events at Huntsville.org. And we conclude this weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features with community newsroom producer Dan Paulus. Dan has been talking with local theater groups. In the final installment of this interview series, we get some perspective from Independent Musical Productions co-founder Vivian Adkins on some unseen challenges in the local theater scene. This is Vivian. I sort of lucked into my teaching career. I never wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I fought against it, and then one one day I woke up and realized that, oh, no, I'm supposed to be a teacher. <laughs> so I finished my education degree. and uh, But before that, you were in the theater. Yes. On the road. I was. Doing professional ex- experiences, and you learned years. a couple things from that, Correct. as I recall you telling me in the past. Correct. And when I, when I first started doing community theater, which was really – while I was still finishing my teaching certification, and I helped found University Playhouse at UAH, I had learned so much from being in that professional situation that sometimes I carried the professional situation into my community involvement, and I think I expected a little bit much of people who have full-time jobs, etc. At the time. At the time. And... However, I've I've learned to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want you I want you to go into a little detail there because you told me a story uh, about when it was literally just lights up, lights down for scene trends. I mean, very basic productions Absolutely. that you experienced when you first got That's to right. town. Musical theater was pretty much one show a year, and then every now and then, at that time, it was uh, Huntsville Little Theater would do a musical, and so I ended up directing for Community Chorus, their summer show, and for Huntsville Little Theater and musicals, and their understanding of the procedure was not the same as mine. (laughs) That's very charitable. (laughs) And and so, well, you know, it was a community theater. Sure, sure. But this was, this was, again, when Huntsville was a lot smaller place, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There were, there were maybe three companies that did anything, you know. I thought... They don't realize the talent that's here and what can be done with it, really, that it can be as good as we can make can it. Make it right. Yes. And so, therefore, I decided at some point to, and I was already teaching at Lee then, and I had started doing musicals there. I'd started a musical theater program. There were no high school musicals at the time. Really? No. Not, In all of Huntsville, they no, were not doing musicals. No, well, that's no, interesting. No. That was before Bob Jones and the Madison schools and, and all that. So you we're know. talking about the late 70s? Or what, what, what um, yes. Ish? Okay. Yes, okay. Right. probably, yes. Uh, 
79 to 83, around in there. The transition is happening. Right. And so my friend Debbie Fleischman, who's sitting up here with me, worked in Birmingham at Birmingham Children's Theater. And she started a theater company in Coleman, Alabama. Okay. Down south. And I went down to help her and, and, and was working with her there. And we started a community theater there. And I thought, if Coleman can do this, Huntsville can do this. And I was sitting, we were sitting actually in 1983 in my friend's house with the Coleman group watching the Sweeney Todd video. And this is a famous story for all our listeners. This was a true inspiration right. of, a, of a specific show said, that inspired you to, to really start IMP, Brian, right? I said, I have to do that show. I have to do that show. So coming back to Huntsville, getting back into the community theater here, I tried to find somebody to do it. I had stayed away from community theater for a while because... The high school and other, uh, yes, other things. Yes, and, and sure. I was just very, very busy. And that company, if they would be interested in doing Sweeney Todd. And that was the beginning. And that was the beginning. But they didn't want to do it. But what, yeah. It was one of Sondheim's first really big shows. And I finally just said, well, darn it, I'll do it myself. And so we formed a little company. And we did in 1993. We had our first show, which was Sweeney Todd. Great reviews, good attendance. Did it in the concert hall, which was fun and, and great. And I brought in some of my friends from other places to help some with some things. And I want to ask you about that, too, because mm-hmm. part of what we've been talking about is the venue challenge that some people have. Yes. Lots of venues. You, you've done a real smart thing with your relationship with Lee mm-hmm. and utilized a fantastic space over there that I was uh, lucky to be a part of Shrek when we did mm-hmm. it. And I was really impressed by what was offered there. Other companies in town are at the Von Braun Center and, and uh, talking about wanting other spaces. What's, what's your take kind of briefly about the challenge of finding the right space to perform in, and, and um, especially with more theaters popping up than ever before, right? Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So we'd really love to hear um, what, you're, what you're thinking on that. Well, venue-wise, we need a public space in this town that will seat 800 or so people. Lee is the perfect size. It's the perfect venue. It's not perfect. There are some things there that, uh, as you know, I helped design that situation and then went back and opened it uh, when they called me back to teach again. And there are some things I found were wrong. But basically, it is an amazing space. And um, it's far better than anything else in town. And, right. and so Lee has the has everything that, everything that we need. So you're talking about ideal kind of collaboration that's mm-hmm. happened in the past. And that's one right. of the things that we wanted to talk about in, in these segments was how do we do that better moving forward? You know, with more theater companies, with actors, uh, an acting pool that everybody's auditioning from, you know, because Huntsville has so much going on, so much it theater, does. but so many other events now. What in your mind does good collaboration look like? We collaborated with Community Chorus for seventeen seventy six okay. a few years ago. Okay. And that was very that was very satisfying. We actually did rent in um, Merrimack Hall, but now they don't have community groups in there at all okay. now. They're basically their dance programs and things like that, mm-hmm. which is which is fine. It's a great little space, um, but the, anyway, their their outlook I think has changed. They don't even bring in touring shows anymore like okay. they used to. But there is a competition that I don't like, <laughs> okay. but it's I get it's part of the game. Um, we need a certain amount of people. We need a certain kinds of people, and the other companies need the same thing. And so people have to decide which company they're going to work with. Uh, we do not limit our people from doing other things. We have board members that, that do work with other companies sometimes, too. But it is a scheduling challenge. It is and, a And sometimes scheduling a scheduling challenge. nightmare that for, for you and everyone That's to right. figure that out, right? And, and and we try to do that. You know, we want people to have the, all the opportunities they can. But that's one of the problems is sharing the talent, sharing the spaces now has become a problem mm-hmm. uh, because everybody wants to go to Lee. And I know that's a passion here is the costume and the design piece in it particular. Is, right? So <laughs> in, our, in our final moments, speak to us about um, what the future looks like, especially for you, for, for IMP, what you hope the, the landscape looks like for the theater scene and for IMP. Um, are there shows that you still want to do that are out there on your, your favorite list? And uh, Come you know, from get, away. 
Well, that's a wonderful show. Um, a lot of people don't know about yet because it's still on Broadway, I but know. it is going to be touring and hopefully coming here right. soon. Yeah. And uh, that's my bucket list show be- okay. before I retire, which will be probably in 20 years. <laughs> but <laughs> um, that's really uh, because it means so much because of 9-11. It just means a lot. Yeah, that's a me. wonderful show. If you want to check that out on iTunes. Right. Um, it's a wonderful yeah. story. So that one gives me chill bumps every time I think about it. We have done some wonderful things. I, I hate to say that some of the things we don't get to do, the ones we want, because they're not financially feasible. In other words, just because you and I, who are theater people, know them doesn't mean that the general public does. So therefore, the ticket sales are nice. And we have to sell tickets. Um, have to be sustainable. Our, it's, it's not there to make a t- ton of budgets. money. It has to be enough to sustain and continue to be able to do right. shows in the future. And people don't realize, I think, that even in our theater here, our budgets run from 35000 to 60000 depending on the show. And there's no way we can sell enough tickets for that. So we try to get sponsorships and things. As you know, you've helped us do sure. some. And to keep those ticket prices low right. enough so right. people and families can come right. see it. Right, right. right. All right, so so final dream beyond that. In five years, what do you want to look back and see? In five IMP years, doing? I would like to have um, a an executive director to help do the things that we we as even though I'm retired, ha ha, semi, <laughs> um, that we don't have time to do. Who can help us use our talents to the best of our ability? Right now, our boards are so many of us are involved in a show at the time. So how, who's running the store while we're doing the <laughs> right. show? And, you know, you came in and, and actually gave us some insight on some things, which I really appreciated. So we've made some changes. We, we've dropped a show. We only do three a year now instead of the four that we were doing. We still do our five cabarets, though. They're some of the most fun things that we do. We also do a lot of outreach to New Hope, as you know, and to the trip and AAA and actually all the schools. We we loaned costumes to every high school in this area, including Birmingham and this past year. It's amazing. That's great. Yeah, and you have a uh, a long history of, of really stepping up right. with the And we but. support uh, community theaters in Athens and Decatur, Red Mountain Theater, oh. in, which is professional theater in Birmingham. We've loaned them costumes, and they don't like to keep their costumes, so they if they get something, they usually send it up to us, which helps us. So it's very it's very great. Shades Valley Academy down there. Um, uh, Lots Spain of Park. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. All these, all these yeah. schools, they know about that IMP, and we're going by Imp Huntsville now. We just wanted to be a little bit more specific and be proud of where we are. That was Vivian Adkins, co-founder of IMP Huntsville. It's showtime once again for the theater company. Their new season begins Sunday, August 18th at 6 p.m. with a cabaret in the speakeasy at Straight to Ale. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Katie Ganaway. Brett Tannehill mixed the show together, creating the sweet, sweet audio pie. That is the public radio hour. Thanks to community newsroom producers Tim Miller and Dan Paulus for chipping in. We upload each episode to our archive. Just look under the Programs tab for the Public Radio Hour to catch up on past episodes. And if you dig what we do here, let us know with a pledge of support at WLRH.org. We appreciate your support, and we thank you for listening. Catch you back here next Thursday night at 7. Good night, everybody.